Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always today is Joe Healy. And we are here this week to talk about some of the happenings around college baseball. Obviously, the the big things that this this week was the draft signing deadline, which was on Sunday. So as we record this on Wednesday, it was a, a few days ago. Uh, some of the, the big news from that, obviously, was that Kamar Rocker did not sign with the Mets, but also is not going to return to Vanderbilt. And Judd Fabian did not sign with the Red Sox, but is going to return to Florida. Uh, so we'll get into some of the, the fallout from all of that and discuss uh, you know what that means for the Gators, especially now that, that Judd Fabian is returning to, to school next season. Uh, we also are going to get into some of the, the the transfers, the impact transfers that have happened around the country this year. Uh, we're, we're in the process of, of ranking out the, the top 100 transfers from this summer. We're, we have the top 50 on the website now. We're uh, going to be expanding that list over the, the coming weeks. And so we're going to get into some of that as and uh, summer ball winding down might touch on uh, where things stand as uh, as teams head to the playoffs around the country. So a lot to talk about today here on the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're, we're here. It's August. Uh, school is uh, is creeping ever closer. And with that, the uh, 2022 baseball season. Uh, but we're uh, we're still in the, the, the height of summer as well. So uh, enjoying, enjoying all that that brings uh, from a, a college baseball calendar perspective and um, you know, just uh, it, we, we had an eventful last week, you know, baseball, Major League Baseball with the tr- trade deadline as well. Olympic baseball happening. It's it's been a busy baseball week here in uh, in baseball America's world. Yeah, no doubt. It really I mean, this is going to be preaching the choir to you and to, to the listeners. It's maybe a little too, you know, inside inside baseball here. Um, but it, it's just feels like it hasn't really stopped since you know, you and I got back from Omaha when you talk about the the draft and then you and I kind of splitting off to do some, some summer coverage, USA and Cape, like we talked about on the podcast last week. Now, you know, you and I aren't really super involved in, in trade deadline stuff, although we're both observers of it. So, and, and we are both on the Baseball America Slack, which is going crazy as the trade deadline is happening. So there's that. And yeah, you mentioned the Olympics. I've been trying to watch that as much as the time zones will allow for kind of a tough scene with, uh, you know, the games at 11 PM or 6 AM. Those are both really specifically timed for Joe, not to see them for the most part. Although <laughs> I do get up in time usually to see the last few innings of the 6 AM games. That has been a little bit, a little bit nice to have that in the mornings. I will miss just generally the Olympics as daytime television watching that has been even, even the tape delayed stuff has been nice um, to kind of just have on in the background last couple of weeks. So I will be sad next week when that is, that is no longer here, but don't look now I'm building all of this is, is building to, you know, we are winding summer ball down. Um, and it is nice to kind of observe summer. One of my favorite things about summer ball is just kind of filing away some names for the season to come. You know, it's one thing, okay, we check in on these guys who we know are already stars in the game and, and stuff like that, but it's kind of the, the emerging names are always interesting. So, you know, file those away. Um, you know, but, for schools that are on the semester system, traditional semester system, I mean, players are going to be back on campus here in a matter of days or weeks, depending on the academic calendar. So, um, you know, we are in August now. So um, that will be happening not long after that. We will start with some fall practice. I've also seen um, some little uh, morsels of information here and there about um, fall scrimmages happening again between different teams. Uh, so that will be nice. That is a, a nice thing, not just um, from the standpoint of it means getting back to a normal type of schedule, but also I know uh, you and I will agree on the fact that it is nice when you, if you go to a false scrimmage uh, to be able to see multiple teams as opposed to the intra squad thing. So 
it is kind of nice to see because of the competitive the competition level is a little more ratcheted up than, than it is in an inner squad and you get to see two sets of players. So, um, you know, we are, you know, the, the summer ends and the fall really begins in a, in a flash. Um, you know, the, the summer leagues really many of them push up right against the semester starting. So um, we will, we will be shifting gears here, here pretty quickly into trying to examine the fall, which is a, a, a fun time of year, but, but it just kind of begins like a new busy season. Absolutely. It, uh, it, it, it absolutely does. It, doesn't even really stop. I'm, uh, you know, deep in an analysis of, uh, Cape top prospects. And then I have to roll into recruiting rankings. We, we got a lot going on here as, uh, as the summer winds down. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to all of that over the, the coming weeks, but today, like I mentioned, wanted to spend some time looking back at the signing deadline um, not, not an uneventful one, obviously, when you have, when you go into the day with, um, a top 10 pick unsigned and, and as much drama around that as there was with the rocker situation, um, that winds up being probably the biggest story. Judd Fabian had announced the day before that he would not be signing with the Red Sox as a second round pick that he was going to head back. Uh, to Florida. So those two things really dominated it kind of going under the radar, Joe, was that Aaron Zavala like waited until the last minute to sign with the Rangers uh, as their second round pick. Uh, that would have been uh, quite the, quite the thing if that hadn't gotten done as well, uh, but it did. Uh, you know, so we're probably going to gonna focus here on the, on the rocker and, and the Fabian. Uh, there was a third unsigned top 10 rounder uh, prep, uh, infielder Alex Ujoa from from Florida. He is committed to Oklahoma State. Um, you know, so that that's uh, a big, also a big news item that that he did not sign. Just that there were three unsigned top ten round picks. Uh, but Joe, let's let's start with Rocker. He doesn't sign. There is a whole lot of dispute about the medical situation. The Mets ultimately don't even offer him a contract uh, of any kind. After the draft, it had been reported that he was expected to sign for $6 million. So that contract was never ultimately presented, but they also didn't bother to present him with a a, a contract that would have been worth less, uh, as is often the case when you get into these these medical situations. Um, the, The rocker camp maintains that nothing's wrong. Like he never missed a start at Vanderbilt. The Mets saw something that they didn't like uh, in in an MRI. And ultimately that this means that, that they didn't sign him. And Rocker now is being kind of vague about what his next steps are, which understandable, like this all just happened. Um, And there's really no reason for him to to be in any rush to pitch like he can't sign anywhere uh for another year anyway so we're, we're left to to wait and see what what he does from here i guess independent ball is the most likely possibility next spring um or possibly just doing private workouts if he's not going to go back to vanderbilt um obviously this is a really unfortunate situation for baseball frankly but also obviously for for rocker uh to to go through that but i i just it's just i understand some of how this happens and yes rocker did not submit mris in the mlb program uh before the draft which is why the mets could get away with not offering him a contract at all um but the, the system that has been created by MLB and the Players Union, who collectively bargain the draft and many things around the draft, uh, basically rewards teams or, or makes teams whole, may, maybe reward or saying it's advantageous. Maybe that's going too far. But they have done their best to make teams whole for not signing draft picks in the top few rounds. They don't really do anything for the players. And, you know, in some cases, the player is just making a decision not to sign. You know, I 
you think about Nick Lodolo uh, choosing to go to college instead of signing with the Pirates a few years ago, like that, or Gunnar Hogland. You know, those aren't, you know, medical type situations where, you know, you have one set of doctors saying one thing, one set saying another. And, you know, it, it just, for that to be the case, for the Mets to be able to look at this and say, you know what, no, not even going to make an offer with this player that we expressed that we were so excited to draft 10 overall, excited that he, he was available to be picked at 10 overall early in the month. And then late in the month say, actually, no, we don't want him at all. And then, you know, you have owners getting on Twitter and, and, and saying that, you know, I, I talking about investments and, and how basically it wasn't worth it to make this investment. And I, it, it just was a really bad look overall for the game of baseball. And I, it's just really unfortunate that that rocker is caught in the middle of it all with very little recourse ultimately. Yeah. hundred percent. You feel for, for rocker here um, in this situation. I think it's a, it, it is a bad look. I'm with you. I think it's a particularly bad look because it is this player in particular, if this was some other more anonymous college player, uh, you know, I, but the fact that it is the most famous player that college baseball has produced in a long, long time, um, I think is, and the fact that it's the Mets, right? Like it's the Mets. Of course it's the Mets, you know? Um, and this is not a draft podcast, so I will I will leave what you what you said there for the most part. But I, I just don't understand. I just don't understand if Rocker had missed the 2021 season or he had missed starts intermittently, right? Like he's 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 healthy and then he misses a start and he comes back and he doesn't quite look himself and then he he has a good game and a bad game. Like maybe it'd be one thing, but he pitched pretty well. I mean, there were from time to time there were things like hmm, his velo seems a little down today but then it would typically bounce back and the numbers were still good and so I just don't really understand and I'm allowing for the fact that there's obviously you and I don't know the medical we don't know what the Mets saw we also don't know what other information is out there but I just have a hard time understanding like what could possibly be going on there that you just wouldn't want him because basically that's what it boils down to like, okay, I get that you, you don't want to have to overpay for an asset. And I hate using the word asset to describe players, but that's the way they get described. I get that you don't want to overpay for something. That's not people who are in the place of ownerships, rich people don't get there by overpaying for assets, right? Like that's just, that's business one-on-one, but I just don't understand why you, what could possibly be in the medical that would make you think that you just don't want Kamar Rocker. So anyway, that, I mean, that's kind of where I come out here. I, I do think there is, as my initial thought was like, well, it would have been nice to have him back in college baseball, but I will say from this standpoint, I'm kind of glad he, he won't be. And, and first of all, I'll say that I, whatever's best for him, let's whatever's best for the player, let's do that. Um, so I'm assuming this will, it will be best for him, but I am kind of glad that he's not back at Vanderbilt just from the standpoint of it would be kind of just an interesting, uh, Interesting, maybe not even the right word, but it would be a lingering discussion point all season long with him next year if he very publicly did not sign over some sort of concern about his medical that the Mets expressed and very vague information. No one really has a lot of information here. And his camp, by the way, led by Scott Boris, is out there saying he's perfectly healthy. Our independent doctors have cleared him. He pitched at Vanderbilt all year, and then he goes into Vanderbilt next year and pitches as normal um, because then it would be this – I think there would be a lot of discussion of, like, is Vanderbilt doing right by Rocker? If, if he's got damaged – you know, if something in there is damaged, should he be throwing? Like, should they have just shut him down and let him sit the year or whatever else? Like, so I am glad that we aren't going to have that discourse because I think that sounds like it would have been exhausting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. Uh, selfishly though, I would very much have liked to see another year of Kamar Rocker. I mean, we got yeah. denied 2020 Kamar Rocker yeah. for the most part. Uh, let's, uh, let's fire it up for, for another season. I would have been down for that, but, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Whatever he feels like is best for him, obviously is what he needs to, to be doing here. Um, and you know, Vanderbilt obviously has, has plenty of pitching was not expecting him back. Uh, to begin with. So, yeah, I, I just, I hate that this happened. It's not anomalous. Um, I don't know how much the discussion point about that has been out there, but it's not. It happens once every few years. Hopefully 
with it happening in such a public way um, and in a year where the CBA is up, hopefully there's some impetus to clean this up because the, the draft process, the draft system that exists right now is a mess. And it, it has gotten this way because it just keeps getting patchworked. The union has historically not cared too much about fixing parts of the draft. They've been willing to let MLB do what they want in the draft to get something that impacts uh, the union membership immediately, uh, you know, free agency, whatever, um, those kinds of things. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm personally dreading the CBA process, you know, just seeing that play out publicly, probably not in a very pleasant way. Uh, but hopefully if, if they're going to go through that and they're going to have all the fights that they're going to have, hopefully they take it, take the time to really examine the draft because what what we have right now is is very clearly broken and not just in this way in any number of ways there are things that need to be fixed and and hopefully they, they can go about fixing them and, and like you said joe i mean because it was rocker because it was the mets like this is a bigger thing you know the last time this really happened i would say was probably like carter stewart which actually happens to be kamar rocker's other draft class and 2000, um, whatever year that was, 1918, uh, when Stewart gets picked by the Braves, they look at the medical, they say, I don't really like this. Stewart says, I'm okay. Ultimately doesn't sign, signs instead with the Japanese team. He's over there pitching in Japan now. And, but because Carter Stewart was just a Georgia high school prep guy, as opposed to, you know, the, the guy that had won, College World Series had won College World Series Most Outstanding Player through a no hitter in Super Regionals. Like was in so many ways the face of college baseball for many years. Um, you know that is allowed to probably go a little more under the radar. What what happened with Carter Stewart than what's happened here? So maybe that something can come out of this to to help fix the draft system. But yeah, I, it it just was really unfortunate to watch the. The situation play out over the last week, I would say. Uh, all right. So the other big one, like I mentioned, was Judd Fabian not signing with the Red Sox. That one, not medical related. The two sides just could not come to uh, could not come to a deal. And so Fabian returns to Florida. He had a good season, like kind of borderline All American esque, but not All American. I think he was all like first team all sec he hit 20 jacks uh played really good defense in center field for florida also struck out a whole bunch of times uh so like that is the knock on fabian right now is the amount of swing and miss in his game but for florida this is a really big deal to to get him back in the heart of their lineup in center field this is a team that we felt like was already going to be pretty good coming into next season. We have them ranked in the top 10 in the early top 25. And that was back when we thought Fabian was, was gone. So to now have him back in the heart of the lineup, um, you know, this is a potential SEC player of the year. Um, he was a preseason first team All-American in 2021, quite possibly probably will be again in 2022 i mean you just don't normally see those kinds of players return and so now for florida to get him back uh is pretty significant and, and he also he's young for his class because he remember he he came to college a semester early he re reclassified to get to florida a semester early so he's still relatively like he it's not like you're getting uh, an old senior back. Um, he has a lot of experience, but there is also still development that, that may well happen over the next year. And he may be able to work on some of these things uh, that, that would, you know, help him improve and, um, you know, make him a more complete player. Yeah. I, I also, I get the, um, you know, he has to obviously to do it now, but I also kind of get a feeling that there'll be a little bit of a, a house money feeling to next year. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, a, if a, you know, 
he ends up having just really a massive year. And it, it, you brought up a good point. It's like a borderline All-American season that he had this year. But the, the discussion around him was so negative in a lot of ways because it just didn't quite meet our like crazy lofty expectations coming off. And because it started so poorly, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, you kind of lose track of that stuff. And especially once it became clear that Florida was not going to be quite the team we thought they were going to be, it was very easy to just kind of like be like, well, Florida's not as good as we thought they'd be. And Judd Fabian, frankly, is a part of that, you know? Um, So, you know, I I would not be surprised if in 2022, it's a good point you brought up. I'd kind of forgotten that he was actually a year younger than he quote should be. At, at this stage of his career. Um, so you, you take that into account, the fact that, okay, in a normal situation, this would be my draft age. Like last year, I proved a baseline of what he can do. People were down on me, and yet I still got drafted where I got drafted um, and had a good year overall. Like all of that combined, like would not shock me if he comes out and has just a monster season next year because it, it feels like maybe some of that some of that stuff has moved on. You know, he's a year more mature. He knows exactly what he needs to work on now. In some ways, last season can almost be treated like, you know, when an NBA player declares for the draft and goes through the workouts and like, he gets the feedback from the teams that says like, uh, you know, you're not the prospect you think you are in some ways, like Fabian kind of has that opportunity now because he knows where the baseline is got drafted in a certain spot. Okay. Clearly I have holes in my game. I know what those holes are. Let's go to work on them. And then the other thing is that I think this makes Florida a really interesting team. I mean, we, we still have them in the top 10 of our off season top 25. So it's not like we have a ton, you know, a ton of concerns about them, but you know, so we, we do see this from time to time. The team after the team sometimes is the team that is, uh, gets it done. You know um, you know, there are some famous examples of that. This team is a little bit different Florida itself. Indeed. Yes. Great. Yeah. Great point there. Yeah. So the team after the team sometimes is the one that really, really gets it done. Not the team that had all the attention in it. It's shaping up. I have a sneaking suspicion this could be the case with with the Florida team we see next season as well. Yeah, I mean the you, you will hear that theory that you know the the team that had all of the attention usually that there's a lot of draft related attention and, and they don't quite go out and, and get the national championship done. Um, you know, in in the Florida case, that's uh, you know the the seventeen team you know coming off of, or following. The, the 16 team that, that had, you know, so many high round picks, uh, you know, they, they ultimately went 0-2 in Omaha, despite being, you know, the number one overall seed, number one, much of the, the season. Uh, and then in 17, they come back and, and they win the national title and um, similar situation with, uh, with Oregon state in 2018. Um, you know, lots of examples throughout the, the you know Virginia in 2015 lots of examples yeah. in UCLA, recent college baseball yes yes it, it took them two years but um yeah it wasn't the Colin Bauer teams that, that got it done it was it was 2013 with Adam Plutko and, and Nick Vanderteig um you know so maybe that maybe there is something to be said for that with uh with this Florida team and the other really important thing with Fabian coming back here is that Florida was going to be it still will be a lot younger in, uh, in, in 22 than they were in 21. They're going to have to rely on some of their newcomers. Well, this is now one more veteran who is back one more spot where they don't necessarily need to be breaking somebody new in. And, you know, I mean, that, that I think that's significant uh, for a team that, that will skew a little bit towards the younger side that, that you have a player, not only who's older, but, but uh, has, has been through some of these processes before that, that can help guide uh, the, the younger players along. No, I think it's a, I think it's a great point um, because any, you know, it's, it's one of those things where anytime you are, how do I, how do I phrase this? Anytime you're plugging back in a player like that, you're kind of, it's doing double duty where, okay, you get his production back. Also, you're sliding everyone down a seat. So you've got a guy who maybe would have been pushed into a role he wasn't quite ready for next year, that is now going to be in a role that better fits him, whether that's spot starter, player coming off the bench, sliding to a DH, what, you know, whatever it is. Like, so getting these guys back, it kind of, it's like compounding interest. You know, it's not just that you get this guy's production back. You also are providing a little better fit maybe for someone else in the roster. Yeah, so I'll be very interested to see 
where Florida goes with, with that. I, I do think their offense has a chance to be pretty good. I mean, you look at, at Fabian, Josh Rivera, Chris Armstrong uh, is having a pretty good summer uh, in the Cape and, and he's back. Um, you, you get Sterling Thompson and Colby Halter, you know, two very good freshmen from this season, you know, getting back in there. I, I think they, they could be, uh, it, it could be a very nice offensive team just has to figure out where the, the pieces on the pitching staff fit now with, uh, with Leftwich and, and Mace gone. Uh, but I, I do like how Florida is setting up offensively as, as we look at the, uh, at the 22 season. Yeah. The, another SEC team with, uh, you know, really pretty, pretty set offense and questions <laughs> on the mound. So stop me if you've heard that one before. Yeah, it you know so much we so often we think of the SEC as this uh, this great pitching league, and I'm sure there will be great pitchers in the SEC. In fact, I know there will be great pitchers in the SEC next year, but it might be a little more offensive than uh, than folks are used to. Uh, sounds a little bit like football. That's right. That's right. Um, I don't know if that means the Big Twelve is going all in on pitching next year or what, but uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll have to wait and see how that how all of that shakes out, but. We'll, uh, we'll certainly be talking more about Florida, about Vanderbilt, how they move on um, and, and readjust going into the, the 22 season as, uh, as we continue here uh, throughout the offseason on the Baseball America College podcast. And just as a reminder, uh, as we go through the offseason, we're, we're going weekly uh, with the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, we're going to start with our interview guests next week. We're going to, you know, bring on uh, as, as many guests as we can over the course of the off season to, uh, to talk about various elements of college baseball. So make sure you are subscribed to the baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple podcast, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcasts, you can find us, uh, hit the, uh, Hit the subscribe, follow, like, whatever, whatever it is, that specific platform button. And, uh, you know, look for us throughout the offseason. We're going to keep talking college baseball uh, all, all year long here on the Baseball America College Podcast. We'll do some more of that coming up here in a second. We're going to get into some of these impact transfers around the country. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, we, uh, a few weeks ago now, <laughs> I don't remember exactly when we, we published the top 50 transfers, uh, but more transfers keep happening all the time. And we're, we're going to be expanding that list uh, sooner than later, I suppose, into the top 100 transfers from the year with, uh, with, with college baseball now, not, you know, the NCAA changing the, the transfer requirements and, and players not having to sit out a season uh, before they are eligible, all transfers will be immediately eligible. All first-time transfers, I should say, will be immediately eligible. Um, they uh, th- there are a lot of potential impact players on the move this offseason. I know you've been kind of spearheading the the transfer tracking process here. Um, so as as you've been going through that this summer, trying to track all the all the significant movement. Um, what, what kind of have been your, your overall thoughts about what you've seen in college baseball with, uh, with the new rule change in, in terms of how the transfer market is now operating? There are a couple of things, just general themes that stand out to me. One is that I, I don't think there has been as much movement as I thought there would be. Uh, I have not really canvassed. I've not gone out and really asked, you know, coaches and I, I'm sure I will as time goes on, like, you know, did, did it feel, and it depends on who you ask, right? If you're somebody who had, you know, 15 players in the portal or you brought in a class of eight, you know, you probably feel like it was very active, but, you know, I think just generally there have been some names in there that you in a normal, and I say normal, like pre this year situation, you might not have seen in there. Um, so there definitely is like a class of player. Like for example, the, you know, Jacob Berry, you know, in that situation where Jay Johnson leaves from one school to the other, like in, in under previous circumstances, he probably just stays at Arizona because he doesn't want to lose that year. Right. So that type of, especially situation. being his draft year, like he definitely would have, would have stayed put. Right. For sure. That's a or, or at, if, if he had just wanted to leave, like if for whatever reason he, 
Chip Hale hadn't meshed, he would be at like Central Arizona Junior College or whatever. Right. Exactly. So half a pie. There was a yeah. There was a. It's a good point because you know him being in like an early draft, like a draft eligible sophomore, adds a little layer there. But even for the guys who would typical third year drafts, like a little wary of losing that year, kind of in the middle. So there, it definitely is a class of guy who would not have been in the transfer portal had it not been for the immediate eligibility. But for the most part, though, the transfers that we saw in the portal, like yes, there are more of them, and a lot gets made of the sheer volume of players in the portal. But it was mostly still just the types of guys that you expect to see in the portal. You know, um, it's guys who have kind of, for lack of a better way, putting it aged out of their program. And that has gotten a little more complicated because of COVID roster situations where, like we've talked about before, there are some schools that just aren't doing fifth year guys. Um, they're kind of, I don't want to say pushing them out because I think it's a, it's a little more nuanced than that. But their, their, their scholarships are not being honored for a fifth year. So those guys have to find a place to go. You combine that with, Hey, we've, you know, we've got to get our roster down to a reasonable size this year, more reasonable size. Um, so I think that's a, a huge point. Like I see people talking about the sheer number, the sheer volume of players in the portal and like kind of seeming like they're forgetting the fact that there were uncapped rosters in 2021. And we all knew once they went uncapped, that this was going to happen in some regard because you couldn't possibly keep all those players happy. And also like that, it just wasn't going to be a forever circumstance in all likelihood that, that it wasn't like teams were just keeping older players on their roster. And that's why they had 40 players on the roster, 45 players or whatever it was. And you know, so I, I just see a lot of people saying things that it seems like are pretty anti like this generation of player, like, Oh, you know, this is how it's just going to be. And like, you can't possibly like loyalty, blah, blah, blah. Like you've, you've seen the tropes, but like, they're not the ones that decided that having 45 players on a 2021 roster was the way to go. So some of this movement can be attributed to whatever terrible, stereotype you want to slap on gen z but a lot of it is not that yeah, it's, it's it's kind of like that thing where um people bag on millennials and gen z for the participation medal generation or whatever and it, i always kind of wonder like well who was giving us those medals we didn't, <laughs> we didn't give them to ourselves yeah i didn't, didn't ask make, for that we didn't make that decision anyway um but yes yeah, so it's, it's a great point i mean this is the point where in terms of code rosters where the rubber really meets the road, right? Because last year at this time, it was just kind of a personal program choice, right? So like there were some some places that were like, well, we're, we're just going to roll it back out there next year. We'll deal with the ramifications when they when they end up on our doorstep. Um, other schools, you know, were trying to kind of clean it up as they went. Um, but this is really where it gets tough because you do have to get your roster back down. Even if you keep it, even if you kept the numbers pretty high, like to your point, you're not going to keep everybody happy that way. And now you've got this freedom of movement. So this is, as, as, as much confusion and, and just um, hand-wringing as there was last year, like this is actually now where I think it gets hard. So, so anyway, I say all that to say like, for the most part, the players in the portal are the players we expect in the portal. It's, it's those guys, it's the guys who were um, expecting to have a big role on their team in 2021 that didn't, um, you know, and, and so for the most part, that's who's in the portal. Um, so it hasn't been maybe as crazy as I expected it to be. Is the, is the quality of player better this year than an average year? Absolutely. Um, but not, I would not say it's more than just a couple of standard deviations better. Um, and maybe that will, maybe there is still some, something to the idea that certain players are kind of a little reticent to do it, a little hesitant. Um, they want to see what plays out. And if, if three or four years down the road, it gets to a point where like where, where football is right now, right? Where it's like Justin Fields, can go from Georgia to Ohio state and be a Heisman contender the next year and, or enter your quarterback here. Who's done that in the last decade. Like maybe that does open the floodgates a little more and be like, well, okay, this is not going to be clearly, this is not going to be detrimental to my career as long as I'm as good as I think I am. So maybe we'll get there, but it seems like we're off to a little bit of a slow start from that standpoint. The other thing I will say just general thoughts is that uh, it remains to be seen where the draft ends up falling that is still an open question amazingly among the problems the draft has is now we've got this like moving target on terms of when it is. Um, and we all agree that it was not great for college anyway, when it kind of interrupted the college postseason. Um, so anyway, 
But as long as the draft is as late, roughly as late as it was this year, um, there was a phenomenon we saw this year. Um, it was exacerbated by COVID roster issues and yada, 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 that players who kind of threw their names in the portal as kind of an insurance policy, I feel like. So there were a lot of players who were borderline drafts who went into the portal and then were just going to kind of wait and see on the draft. And as long as the order of operations is season ends, draft in after that at some point in the summer, and then, you know, reporting to campus if you decide to come back to college, as long as that's the order of operations, I do think that is something that we will continue to see among the, the guys who are juniors and seniors moving forward is just kind of leaving their options open um, and, and seeing kind of what happens after that point. And, you know, that, by the way, I don't know if you've kept up with it, Teddy. Are you familiar with the Kofi Coburn uh, saga in college basketball? Um, less so than you. Has he still not picked a program? No, he's back at Illinois. Um, okay. But I say that to say the situation with baseball, like that's a little bit of like a coach's waking nightmare of the situation is like, even if the communication between player and program and player and coach is very good, there's still just the uncertainty of, well, I'm going to have to wait until the draft passes before I have any. And that's always true, but you typically know which guys are going to go and which ones aren't. But now that they've got a third option of the portal, like it really does kind of create a lot of uncertainty. And, and I know, I, and I'm very pro player movement. Do not take this as me saying like, boohoo, these coaches jobs just got harder because I think like, look, this is why you're getting increasingly paid more money in college baseball, like to figure these issues out. So figure it out. But there is that third door. So the Kofi Coburn situation, for those who are unfamiliar, is a very impactful player for Illinois on a very good team at Illinois last year. All America. Yes. You know, um, and he at the end of the, he's kind of a fringy NBA prospect because he plays a style of basketball the NBA no longer plays. He's a true center. He's a true big. And so he could kind of go, you know, he could go pro and he, he just is what he is as a prospect. He's probably never going to get way better. He's not going to really improve his stock, but he's proven himself enough. His stock isn't really going to drop. So he declares for the draft and is just going to test the waters. And oh, by the way, he's also in the portal. And so now the Illinois coaching staff, which by the way, also lost their two top assistant basketball coaches during this process, which made it even harder. Um, So now Brad Underwood and his staff are having to basically from scratch, essentially, once he decides he's not going to go to the draft, because I think there is some level of like, hey, if the kid wants to go pro, let's let him do that. But once he decides he's not going to do that, now they're having to fend off like Kentucky to keep their player. And like that is absolutely the coach's waking nightmare of this transfer portal situation is having to just re-recruit my best players to try to get them back to campus. And so like as I'm seeing this happening, I'm just like, don't get me wrong. Again, I want the players to have this option. I want whatever similar situation we have in baseball, like I want them to have those options. But on the other hand, I'm just like kind of grinding my teeth thinking like this is the, this situation is the exact reason why we've had so much struggle getting to this point, because they are afraid of this specific situation here of having to convince their best player that if you're not going to go to the NBA, come back here instead of going to just somewhere else. And there just hasn't been a whole bunch of that in baseball. I mean, there, there's been, some surprises in in terms of who's in the portal and and who's not and um you know we certainly saw some guys you know Arizona changed coaches so late that guys had to get in the portal um as kind of the insurance policy if if things didn't work out and then you saw a whole bunch of them ultimately pull themselves back out and say no I'm I'm going to stay at Arizona. And that's the other thing to remember when you see totals about number of baseball players in the portal is that just being in the portal doesn't mean you're moving for sure. Um, And that there are also players in the portal that are moving, uh, but ultimately will end up at junior colleges. Like you see that too, but they put their name in the portal to find out. And like those transfers have always happened in college baseball. And I just don't think that this has been, I, I, it seems like at least in its first year, it has been less of a thing than um, like less of a, a concern than it, it it might have been or might have been made out to be. So we'll see where it goes moving forward. Uh, of course, this legislation was passed relatively late. And so, you know, maybe now 
with everyone having had a year to look at it. Maybe next year will will be a you'll you'll see more movement or something. But ultimately, I, I the thing you got to remember is that most college kids, period, baseball players, football players, regular students, whatever, they don't want to transfer. Like they went to a school for a reason. And yes, there are you know just regular students who get there and realize, oh, this isn't this isn't the right fit. And so obviously that then carries over into athletics, but most, I don't think most college students want to transfer. It's a lot of work. You know, you have to go find a new school and figure out which courses transfer and which courses don't and, you know, make all new friends and all the rest of it. Like it's not, it's not usually the path that the people want to be following. Well, yeah. And we we just underestimate that exact point of how difficult that is from the school logistics standpoint, but you and I both, um, well, you, you told me this story, but you know, you heard from a, a coach who you were asking about a player potentially transferring and his response was, well, yeah, he has a girlfriend now. <laughs> like, and so like, we just kind of underestimate those aspects of like, okay, you've, you've met a girl and you're dating and like, do you want to, are you just going to leave that, you know? And, and for some players will be like, well, you know, we'll figure it out. But like, for many, it's also like, no, you know what? I'm comfortable here. And like, I've kind of made a little bit of a life here. So that's exactly right. We, I think we underestimate um, or, or perhaps overestimate a player's general willingness to transfer to, you know, anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, in the, a lot of times you go to school close to home and I mean, some people might realize they need to be further or, you know, you go to school too far away, whatever, but like there are reasons why you picked the school you picked it. Um, that extend beyond sports. Like no one is just picking it based on sports. So yeah, I, 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 I'll be interested to see where it goes from here, but as of now, I I don't think it's been, um, you know, quite the sky is falling situation that, uh, some might've painted it to be before or might be painting it now. Um, so all that said, Joe, uh, we, we looked at some of these, these top impact guys, uh, Jacob Berry, who you mentioned, um, All-American this last year at Arizona as a freshman, not just a freshman All-American, like a full-on All-American. Uh, he transfers to LSU. I, he's presently the most impactful player to have, uh, to have done so. Uh, but there, there are a lot of other guys out there who do have a chance to, to make a, a pretty significant impact. Uh, in the in the 22 season so who else has has stood out to you as as you've looked through the the transfers and that are I should say that are committed so far that that is who we have have ranked uh to this point not just anyone in the portal yeah it's a good distinction because I think there you know maybe would be a little bit of confusion out there and and just finding out if a player by the way just finding out if a player is committed is kind of a, a chore because these are not you know basically as these transfers they're not as official for lack of a of putting it. I'm kind of struggling to find the right word, but basically these transfers are just binding to the extent that like this player is just going to show up in the fall and like, well, I mean, eventually they do sign something some of them, like you do eventually sign a, a grant of, or a, I can't remember the official term, but like, it's not a scholarship. It's the, like the financial aid paper that you sign. Right. 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 But until that gets signed, it's not like there's no LOI to sign, you know? Right. Yeah, there's nothing stopping a kid from saying he's transferring to Arkansas, you know, like on Twitter. But like, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, and I just use that example randomly, but like, um, but that's kind of the point I'm making is like, until a player like either files the paperwork and it becomes officially official to where it's seen in the portal, or it's an acknowledged on social media by the player or the program, like we're just saying the player's uncommitted. So I'm sure, and we will probably do some kind of content maybe it's just something on twitter maybe it, i don't know what it'll be but you know we've talked about putting together a list of the top uncommitted transfers and that list continues to dwindle and i'm certain we will put someone on the uncommitted list who actually has has committed somewhere we just don't know it right because like we have no way of knowing um because also roster it's not like they're putting these guys on rosters immediately you know so anyway long I mean, no one has there. a 2022 roster Correct. anyway and if they do it's just that they've rolled over the returning players you know like some teams will do that because they just like basically click a button in their content system you know and so it'll show the 22 roster but it's, it doesn't include the incoming players it's just the existing guys rolled over um so yeah so a lot of the top players you may have noticed if you looked at our top 50 list um are 
condensed on a couple of places who have really been super aggressive. Um, LSU is one of those places. Jacob Berry is the headliner. And I would argue he's probably the player who I think, and maybe he's the only one we could have that debate who just by himself, I'm not talking the totality of a class, but if Jacob Berry was the only player that went to LSU as an incoming transfer, he's the single player who by himself changes a team's national title outlook among the teams who you could conceivably say could be in the mix to win a national title. So by that, I'm saying, you know, Jack Moss, the number two player we had ranked is a really nice player, a really talented player. He greatly changes Texas A&M's outlook next year, but do we believe Texas A&M to be a national title contender? I think the answer right now is, is no. So that's what I'm saying among the teams who I think we would talk about as contenders in that way. Jacob Berry is really the only one I think that by himself, like really changes the percentage outlook chance that that team wins a national title. Now I would say. I would say that Chase Berhoffen has a chance to be that player. Wherever we have him ranked right now is too low because since we did that ranking, he has continued to hit in the Cape. It's a good point. I, I, w- I was about to argue too, like depending on his role, like you might could talk me into like Jack Washburn at Ole Miss. Um, yeah, that's a that's also a, a new commitment. You know, he pitched for the national team. He pitched for the collegiate national team. So, like, that's the kind of player that Ole Miss picked up in Jack Washburn, uh, who who left Oregon State. Yeah, and so the, especially when you consider Ole Miss's needs, you know, I mean, we we, just, yeah. we talked to just a couple weeks ago or last week, whatever it was, of like we're not really sure who's going to pitch for them, and ta-da, here it is. Um, so I would imagine they they give him a crack at starting on the weekends. But they, they also, Ole Miss has another nice player, John Gaddis from Texas and Corpus Christi. Like, he's not going to be, like, SEC pitcher of the year type of guy, but that's exactly the right type of transfer given their given their needs. But but LSU did a really nice job. They, they brought in, speaking of need, like, one of the other players I think that might go a little overlooked is Tyler McManus, who they brought in from Samford. Um, had a really nice year last year. He's a catcher by trade, and that's important because LSU – really struggled behind the plate. Hayden Travinsky was limited to injury and then Alex Malazzo took over. And while he was a good defensive player, really struggled with the bat. And so if McManus is capable of being the full-time catcher and he can give you a, at least a minimum viable product defensively, I think he's really a game changer for LSU. We talked about Eric Razelman for LSU on last week's show. Um, but again, LSU, a team that a lot of questions on the pitching staff, if what he has shown this summer in the Cape translates over to the spring, I think they're in a lot better shape there. We also can't have this discussion without talking about some of A&M's players. We mentioned Jack Moss, Micah Dallas going from Texas Tech to Texas A&M is huge. Uh, one of the more proven pitchers that was in the transfer portal. A guy who's pitched and had a big role on teams that have gone, gone to Omaha. And A&M has just done a really nice job with plugging holes in general. Um, you know, clearly – Jim Schlossnagel and his staff came in with the idea that they were really going to be very aggressive to try to turn that roster over right away. And I can already tell you that I'm sure you and I are going to have um, quite a debate come the preseason on what we do with Texas A&M. Because when you talk about some of these players they brought in, I mean, it's just a completely different roster. And it's, I mean, they're probably going to, I don't know how many players they had ranked in the top 50, but it was quite a few. And they've added some more when you talk about you know, uh, I don't think Jacob Palish was on our top 50 list. Like he's coming over from Stanford. No, he Troy- wasn't. That that happened. That happened post-draft. So no. Yeah. Troy Clonch from Oregon State. Um, you know, that's a nice player. Uh, so AM continues to add here. Um, so it's a really intriguing class there. Two other, a couple of other shout-outs here. Um, NC State's got some interesting players. Um, it's a smaller class than what LSU and and uh, what AM is bringing in, but you know, Josh Hood, a shortstop from Penn, uh, was drafted, um, but is expected to be uh, NC State starting shortstop next year in place of Jose Torres. They've also brought in two of the better players from a very good Charlotte team last year outfielder Dom Palali and uh, Gino Gruber, who was playing first base, two really good bats there. And Sam Hall from Clemson, who had a pretty big year in 2019, um, since then has not been quite as good, but he's an interesting power speed guy. So kind of late in the game NC state their class really consisted of in terms of big name players josh hood and nobody else for a long time and they've added those three other players really late so um, that's kind of a fascinating class full of, of really talented players and you know they're oklahoma state and kentucky have been really really active um it remains to be seen what 
becomes of that um, because sometimes volume is helpful. Sometimes volume is just volume. Um, so we'll have to kind of see how that ends up playing out, but those are two of the more active teams at least that we've seen in the, in the portal. Yeah. The uh, A&M situation is just fascinating because they have taken just so many transfers that um, it, it's, it's a completely different team at this point and how is it all going to gel and mesh together? And we're just going to have to give it a whole wait and see. Uh, but that is going to be one of the very interesting teams to, to look at in the fall. Uh, just what they, what they look like coming into this. Um, so yeah, those are, uh, th those, those are all very interesting. You did mention Florida state. Um, and that's very interesting. Just, on the pure fact that they have added a Gator and a Hurricane this offseason, uh, and they're very good players, bringing in Jordan Carrion from Florida. He can play shortstop. He can pitch. He could do any number of things, basically, for Florida State. Uh, he'll come in to, for his second year. And then Alex Terrell, who has been a uh, just a, a really prolific slugger at times for Miami, um, and, and comes in with a lot of college experience joining the, uh, the Florida State lineup. Um, that's not all that Florida State's done transfer-wise, but those have been two of the bigger ones. Um, they brought in a, another player from Tennessee Tech who can probably yeah, slot Roberts, into the yeah. middle of their infield. Yeah, so I, that, that's an interesting group for me, if, if for no, no other reason than just the, the narrative value of them adding, adding players from their two biggest rivals. Yeah, Terrell strikes me as like a really – it seems like a perfect transfer from Florida State on a number of fronts. One, I think he's a big bounce-back candidate. He's never been a complete hitter. Like, that's just not who he is, um, but does have prodigious power. He had one year when he hit 24 home runs. So I think he's a little bit of a bounce-back candidate um, because he, he did – it was just a – I mean, I would say a below-average year last year. He still had seven home runs, but he just wasn't himself um, – in 2021 for Miami uh, among a number of hitters who you could say that of for Miami. But the other thing is like, it's a good fit for that park. You know, I mean, <laughs> I could just see him banging wall balls off that screen in right field for Florida state time after time, after time uh, in Tallahassee. So it, that strikes me as like the exact perfect type of transfer for Florida state, especially given that their offense last year was Matt Nelson. And then you weren't really sure what else you were, you were going to get there. So um, good, good shout on Florida state, because you're right. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a smaller class, but it's a good class of players. And, and I think, um, some really good fits for what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the biggest challenge I think for us trying to evaluate this stuff. I mean, we can evaluate it in the, uh, in the vacuum and just say, well, okay, Jacob Berry is the best player to transfer this year or whoever. Uh, but when you, when you try and evaluate how teams did, beyond just saying like, oh, well, look at, look at this very talented player that is now going to, going to play for them next year. Uh, you got to evaluate the fits and everything and everyone needs something unique. So looking at how that all shakes out is, uh, is going to be interesting as we, as we get into the fall and, and really start evaluating where some of these teams stack up. I guess we'll, uh, that's kind of the headliners. Are you ready for some, ready for some under the radar stuff? Yes, let's do it. All right. So in terms of under the radar class, that's a team we talk about a decent, probably more so than, um, than we otherwise would, but you know, I'm a Houstonian. So, Hey, we're, we're going to go there. Um, Rice brought in an interesting class. Um, there's still an open question of what to expect from Jose Cruz Jr. as a head coach without experience. We can say this of a number of guys, Willie Bloomquist, Arizona state. Um, but I will say his first act being uh, speaking of Arizona state, uh, Adam Tulloch just committed to them. And that's uh, that's a significant one. Oh, that is he, a good uh, one. Com coming from West Virginia, had a really good summer on the Cape was drifted. Uh, they've lost some players in, in the transfer process. You mentioned Jack Moss, obviously um, when you change a coaching staff, that's going to happen. Uh, but that's uh, that is a big incoming transfer. Yeah. Hunter jump also. He's one of the players who was going to, um, Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're right. So I am typing that. Listeners are going to uh, listen along <laughs> as I type Adam Tulloch's destination into our spreadsheet here. That's what the noise. Yeah, that was right that was here. a last night situation. So. How about that? Breaking news. Doo, 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 doo. Um, so yeah, 
still under and we're, we're not going to rice. Able, yes, we're not going to be able to answer those questions about Rice and Jose Cruz Jr. for even after next season. But the first act being in bringing in the type of transfer class that he has, I think, is a good first sign if you're looking for early signs that, like, okay, you know, maybe this is something here. It's the class is short on proven players at the Division One level, Ex- the exception of Cooper Chandler, who's coming over from Pepperdine. Uh, who is a, a good proven arm for the Waves. Uh, he should help right away for Rice, uh, a team that, that struggled to really get consistent starts last year. Uh, there were a lot of concerns last year for Rice, frankly, but um, he will plug and play right away. But there are a couple of other guys in particular that stand out. Um, Drew Woodcox from Texas Tech, Jack Rydell from North Carolina. The reason I bring those two guys up is those two guys are the types of players that Rice should be getting. Um, those are both players, not just from Texas, but from Houston. And I don't mean by Houston, I don't mean the Woodlands or Spring or Cypress or Katie. Those two guys went to city of Houston schools that typically have been when rice has really been going good, have been rice recruiting strongholds. And so like, yes, would you rather have gotten guys who were good enough to be impact players at tech in North Carolina right away? Absolutely. But as a first step for Rice to kind of get back to getting the types of players that they want to get and they should get, I think this is a good step because those are in, in Drew Woodcox even, I think I saw it on Twitter from Mark Berman, who's a local sportscaster in Houston, that Drew Woodcox even kind of admitted that, yeah, I really kind of wanted to go to Rice um, and should have maybe trusted his instinct there. I'm paraphrasing, but so they were in the mix for these types of players, but I just think the shape the program was in the last few years was really dissuading that type of player from going there. So to get back in the mix for the types of players who also have options to go, maybe they're not the key piece of tech or North Carolina's recruiting class, but the types of players who have those options um, is a, like I said, a really good first step for that program. So that's a class that, that I'm going to be watching. And it's, it's one that we're going to have to watch for a few years, because it's mostly, like I said, young unproven players who are going to have to kind of learn on the fly at the division one level. So on an individual player level um we have him ranked pretty high in our top 50 so we, a couple of these guys are this case but they're they're names that might not be as known uh, to people one is carter rostad going from san diego to mizzou really good arm his numbers at san diego have been um they were really good in the shortened 2020 season uh so we don't know what have, would have happened there 2021 they were just kind of okay but it is still a really good arm the stuff is still really good He's going to have opportunity at Mizzou because Mizzou had a mass exodus of many of their best, most talented pitchers after the season via transfer. Um, so there will be opportunity at Mizzou for him. He's a, he's a Missouri product. He's from the Kansas city area. So he's kind of back home. Um, that could be an interesting piece there. I don't, it's, you know, what does it amount to at Mizzou? Because I, I just don't have a lot of confidence. Mizzou is going to be competitive in the SEC next season, but it, at the very least, maybe he can prove himself at that level you know, ahead of his draft year next year. And maybe it does at least give Mizzou something to build around on the pitching staff. Uh, Tyler Corbett, an infielder going from the Citadel to Clemson. Low key, one of, one of the best hitters in the Southeast. He's about a, I don't know, a 350 career hitter at the Citadel. He was absolutely on fire this season, right up until he declared that he was transferring and therefore stopped playing for the Citadel about halfway through the season. But he was hitting, I think, something like 376. Um, he really seems like a plug and play guy, like right away at, at Clemson. And that's an offense at Clemson. You know, they're, they're looking for pieces to build around Caden Grice. Um, and Corbett as somebody who's kind of an on-base guy, he does have some pop, but he's more of like a catalyst on-base guy. It's exactly the type of player you want to put around a Caden Grice in the lineup. I think he's got a chance to be a, an impact guy. RJ Yeager going from Mercer to Mississippi State. Again, uh, when we talk about um, – First of all, we talk about teams that have done a pretty good job with transfers. He wasn't, he actually, his numbers weren't quite as good as I thought they would be, but Scotty DeBrule really carved out a, a good place for himself going from Jacksonville to Mississippi state. He was a contributor on the national title team. I think RJ Ager's a better player than, than DeBrule was. So maybe he's a little, has a little more star power to him, but he's a, a proven guy who's, who's been good for his entire career at Mercer at a good program at Mercer. Um, I think that's a big pickup for Mississippi state, a program that also has had, um, I also like Jess Davis at, at Mississippi State, an absolute burner from UAB, stole 48 bases a couple of seasons ago. He just seems like an easy plug-and-play option at a bare minimum as your late-inning pinch runner type who can, who can wreak havoc on the bases. A real deep cut I would give you is Trevin Michael, uh, a pitcher at Lamar who's going to Oklahoma. Uh, Lamar, like, 
kind of quietly had like a staff full of hard throwing guys this year. They were, they were a lot better this year. So it's no real surprise there, but um, you know, he's a guy who had a 50% whiff rate on his slider this past year was a real weapon for him. Fastball up to 95 miles an hour at Lamar, uh, Oklahoma. We talked about it quite a bit during the season, never really figured it out on the mound last year still feels like they're, they're in the process of trying to get things figured out. So there are going to be opportunities at Oklahoma. Um, and Trevor Michael is proven as a starter. We're not talking about a, you know, a short inning reliever here, a guy who really didn't get his opportunities, proven starter coming from Lamar going to Oklahoma. I think there's a chance for him to be a real impact guy for a Sooners team that is going to have to figure things out on the fly on the mound. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting one. Oklahoma could use it. That's for sure. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see where that goes. RJ Yeager is uh, also an interesting one. Mississippi state, I feel like knows what they need um, in the, in the portal. Like they went out, they knew they needed to brule. They went out, they got to brule um, or a player like him. So I, I, I think that's uh, you know, that, that kind of thing is like, Mississippi State, Notre Dame, Arkansas, like have already kind of proven pre like first year player, like pre players not having to sit out uh, that they knew how to play in the transfer market um, and, and knew what they needed and, and were able to go out and get those kinds of players should have duped to that as well. Um, you know, so looking at what those those kinds of teams bring in now that they have a little more freedom. Um, going to continue to to be interesting to me there. Duke is an interesting. You, you bring up Duke as an interesting team, and it seems um, I think they've got a couple of players they've they've brought in. I I don't have it here in front of me, but um, you know they do a lot of the Ivy League, not allowing grad uh, graduate students to play. Um, they so they do a lot of poaching of those Ivy League rosters, and I have I have to think that the well is a little bit drier this year, given that um, you know on one hand I guess it there are a lot of players in Ivy League schools that are in that position, given that I mean, on one hand, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger. <laughs> right. And, and but those guys don't, there's no tape on those guys, really. You know, you haven't seen a lot of those guys play right. in a couple of years. So if they, if they weren't already established as stars by the time the 2020 season ended, like you just don't, or they've, they've maybe they've gone off in summer ball, but for the most part, you just aren't going to have as much conviction about which guys in, in the Ivy League schools are going to be going to be good fits. But that's kind of one of the interesting things about the Ivy league transfers is there are Ivy league guys all over the place transferring to Alabama and Michigan and places like this. And you look at their profiles and they don't really have track record. And, you know, they don't, you know, I look, you know, for summer ball stuff and it's not really there to be found. And so there are talented players who are going to these, you know, some of these bigger schools and they're just kind of mysteries because of what the Ivy league has, has been over the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, that's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out. And, you know, you've seen not just at the Ivy League, but in some of the other leagues or programs that aren't doing so many on the fifth year that, you know, players players moving from there to elsewhere. And we'll, we'll see what you get from that. Sometimes you, uh, you know, the sometimes those really work out. So we'll uh, we'll, we'll definitely be uh be following where where those guys move to and and, and how well it goes uh in, uh in the 22 season and and beyond because this is not this is not something that that is just unique to uh to this year all right so we're uh look, look you can check out the top 50 transfer list that's online now we'll be expanding it to 100 within the next few weeks here as um you know, once, once school really gets started, I, I think the, the movement for the most part will, uh, will come to a, come to a stop. We're, we're probably going to see a, a burst here over the next week or two. And then that'll, that'll probably, probably about lock in most places. So we'll definitely be continuing to follow that here um, over at baseballamerica.com. We'll be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. And remember, you can find us on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, Joe and I are on Twitter. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. I am at Ted Cahill. And uh, feel free to drop us a line there or in the, the comment section of Apple Podcasts with anyone you would like to hear from on the podcast, guests from around the college baseball world, player, coaches, alums even, 
uh, we're, uh, we're certainly interested in, uh, in hearing from you about who you would like to, to hear from here on the podcast this off season. So until next week, uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rap Soto for presenting this edition and every edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.